0: I'm going to pray and get us started because I will use every minute of our teaching time. Father, thank you so much for your word and for this psalm in particular. I pray that you would use this psalm to tune our hearts today to praise you. I pray that you would use me in this hour, help me to be wise and careful with my words. I pray that you would use this Teaching that I bring this offering to um, encourage the women who are here today. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. In his dark night of the soul, Jesus summons the words of this psalm to express his anguish as he hung dying on a Roman cross. Stripped and beaten, pierced through with nails, surrounded by his enemies and by their hate filled taunts and jeers. He is in both physical and psychological torment. He calls out for God, but in return gets only silence. Yet even in that darkest moment, his thoughts turn to his disciples and to the lost sheep of his fold. By quoting this song that they knew and they would have sung many times, he was directing them back to scripture where they would find that their king their Messiah, would first have to suffer and die, and then rise again before he could rule. Even at the cross, in his agony, Jesus was still teaching his disciples. But a millennia before these events at Calvary, another king suffered the physical and psychological torments described in Psalm 22. That, of course, was King David. And though his song of suffering would be fulfilled in the suffering of jesus on the cross he was nonetheless depicting his own experience now this is a long psalm we know because we read it all together a little bit ago and if we had all the time in the world it would be great to walk through it really slowly you know kind of like a toddler takes a walk in the woods he wants to pick up every stick turn over every rock and chase every little bug, but we don't have that kind of time today, so we're gonna to have to move briskly, and there will be some things that I probably, questions I may not be able to answer. But I'm gonna give you a little structure for the time, how I'm gonna use the time today. So first, we're going to talk about the context. You can see that on your outlines. And then we'll talk about the psalm's content. And then third, we'll look at the three-story structure of the psalm. And fourth, I'll offer some reflections on the psalm and then help us get a conversation started about how we should apply it. Okay, so first, context. Psalm 22 sits squarely in the middle of book one of the psalm. So you remember there are five books to the Psalter and with books one and two serving as the introduction. Well, book one contains Psalms three through 41, all written by David except possibly Psalm 33. Book two contains Psalms 42 through 72, and again, those are mostly written by King David. So the Psalms open in Psalm two by putting a victorious king on display, a king that God himself establishes, a king that rules all the nations with an iron rod. He triumphs over his enemies, and he's a blessing to the people who serve him. Well, then in books one and two, the great King David is on display. We see him in all his agonies, all his triumphs, and all his failures. We're invited to compare King David with this victorious king of Psalm 2. And when we compare them, we have to come to the inescapable conclusion that King David could not possibly be the king of Psalm 2. And we learn, as Israel had to learn, to look for another king. Well besides getting really acquainted with David in books one and two, there's going to be a lot of talk about the nations. Some of these nations are rebelling, like you see in Psalm two, but some are coming alongside Israel to praise God. There's all kinds of injustice and suffering in these books. Um, You'll see the prosperity of the wicked, or you'll see the wicked triumphing over their enemies, over the righteous, and it sometimes feels like God is just out to lunch Where is he? Why don't we see his victory over his enemies? And you can't help but ask with David in Psalm 44, awake, O Lord, why are you sleeping? Rise up and come to our help. But rather than doubting God's ability or his desire to bless his people and defeat his enemies, we should recognize that these two books are showing us in fine detail the rebellion of the nations. And they're showing us that that rebellion of the nations, you know, those people out there, well, sometimes it hits a little closer to home. Sometimes the rebellion of the nations, well, we find that in our own hearts and God's people as well. So, We know that Israel failed in their commission, like Adam and Eve failed in theirs. We see that David fails in his. Who is gonna step in and expand God's kingdom to the ends of the earth? It can't be David. Well, it's the anointed one from Psalm two, but before he can do it, he, something else has to happen. What what has to happen before he can fulfill this commission? Well, Psalm 22 answers that question. Okay, let's look now at the content of Psalm 22. Two weeks ago, I mentioned a pattern that the individual psalms follow. They retrace the whole arc of the book, so they all end with praise to the Lord in some way, even if they start in a place of despair. Well, the turn is where the psalmist breaks See, did I skip something here? No, okay. So in a lament psalm, so even if you begin in a place of despair, you're going to end in a place of praise, and the turn is where that happens. The turn is when the psalmist breaks from his questioning and doubting in God, and he begins to express his hope in God. And the turn in Psalm 22 is quite dramatic, right? It comes in verse 21, where David first pleads, save me from the mouth of the lion, and then "'You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen.'" So this psalm kind of neatly divides in half. With the first half, it's all about David's desperation to be heard and to be delivered, and then the second half is all about his praising God for his deliverance. But that first half of the psalm has its own shape. And I like to think of it like an, the electrocardiograph of a dying person, okay? So imagine like David's hooked up to a heart monitor and you're watching the little waves on the screen. Um, and it looks like he's flatlining, right? He's, he's, there's not a lot of life there. But in verses three and nine, there's a small spike in the graph, a proof of life. Well, these spikes are truths that David is trying to grasp hold of. So we're gonna trace that electrocardiograph. In verses one and two, we start with an unanswered cry. Okay, this is a gut-wrenching cry of abandonment. And his cry, it's like it goes out into a vacuum. It is unanswered. You know, Hospice care workers sometimes tell stories of grown men on their deathbeds calling out for their mothers I mean, these women have been gone for many years in most cases, and yet on their beds, in their fear, and in their anguish, they call out for the person who loved and cared for them in their lives. Well, David doesn't call for his mother, but he calls out for his God, the one, as we see later in the psalm, who has cared for him since birth. He calls out continuously, it says in verse 2, day and night, but he gets no response Well, verse three is the first small spike on the electrocardiograph. In his prolonged moments of psychological anguish, when it seems that God has abandoned him, does David actually quit calling out to God? No. In verse three, he's right back at it. He speaks directly to God, and he reminds God of his own character. He says that, yet you are holy. See, he knows what God is like. He's the holy God of Israel. He's the God who's feared by the nations. He is the one who hears the cries of his people and delivers them. David is no doubt thinking of the early days of Israel in Egypt where they called out to God and he delivered them. He's probably thinking of their time in the wilderness and the battles they fought or their times under the conquest of Joshua. There are many deliverances from their enemies through the times of the judges probably pop into his mind too. Because God is holy, he faithfully hears the cries of his people and he delivers them. But that line of reasoning doesn't quite do it for David. It's not, hasn't quite done it. He seems to flatline again in verses six through eight. And you can hear the internal strife here, the argument he's having with himself. So what if God delivered your forefathers? You aren't like them. You don't deserve to be rescued like Moses or Joshua. You aren't strong like Samson. You're just a worm. So David says, I'm a worm. And he he rightly recognizes his condition here. We are all like worms before God. We've debased ourselves with sin. We don't deserve to be heard or delivered. So David here, again, feels cast out by God. He know he doesn't deserve God's attention, but the abandonment still hurts. And to make it worse, his enemies seem to seize on these reflections. It's like they know what he's thinking, and they shame him further, scorning him for previous boasts David had made. Boasts David saying, God loves me. He delights in me. I'm his anointed king. So his enemies, mock him with menacing facial expressions. That's what it means when it talks about they're making mouths and wagging their heads. They're getting in his face and they're mocking him with his own words. Oh, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him them, since he delights in him. So David looks at his circumstances and he feels the sting of their words. But his faith rallies once more. Here we have another spike on the otherwise flatlining electrocardiograph. Look at verse nine. David recognizes that even though he might not be worthy of God's help, that doesn't matter. Because afflicted, scornful, weak worms are precisely the kinds of people that God hears and delivers. And he realizes these mockings of my enemies aren't true. God has always heard and delivered me. In fact, he has done so since I was a baby. He heard David as a boy in the fields of Bethlehem. All along, it has always been God who has heard David's cries and has delivered him. So out of his well-worn habit, David calls on God once more. Okay, in verses 12 through 18, we move away from the internal agony of David's suffering and we get a close-up picture of the physical torments he's suffering. He feels like he's being hunted. He depicts his enemies as predators, bulls, lions, wild dogs. They've scratched him with their claws, with their fangs, they've punctured his skin. Well, now they're circling for the final slaughter and feast and they are enjoying the thrill of it. They are roaring with the excitement of catching their prey. In verse 14, David's heart melts within him, probably because of fear, and his strength fails him. Death looks certain. In verse 16, his hands and feet are pierced, and then there's the mention of the sword in verse 20. Okay, his enemies are bent on killing him. This is an execution. And just as you feel like that electrocardiograph is going to flatline forever, David cries out once more in verses 19 through 21. He says, save me, O Lord. This time he addresses the Lord by his personal covenant name, Yahweh. Previously, he's been calling out to him as God, Elohim, a general term for a divine being. But here he's using God's personal name, the name that God reveals to his covenant people. And in this desperate address, David reminds God, you, you've made a covenant to me. You have promised me something. Now fulfill your promises. And then comes the dramatic turning point of the psalm in the second half of verse 21. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Okay, what just happened here? I, last night, it was the same thing when I asked women to describe what happened here, I got two different answers. Is he remembering a past deliverance and that's fueling his hope that God will deliver him again? Or was he just dramatically rescued from death? Well, I, when I started studying this, I kind of vacillated between those two conclusions and I started like looking up lots of what scholars have said and there really is no clear consensus. But I really think God had a dramatic rescue of David in this moment. And I have reasons, if you want to know what they are, you can ask me later, because we don't have time to talk about them. But either way, the message of the Psalm does not change. And that is that God delivers his people from all their enemies, and his people respond with public praise, inviting others to experience the same deliverance. Okay, let's look now at the second half of the Psalm. Here we're shifting away from the minor key of lament and into the major key of praise. It's a two for one Psalm, right? We get both a lament and a praise in this one Psalm. Well, in these verses, we see David's response to his deliverance and there are three of them. The very first thing he does, he makes a vow. That's in verse 22. He vows to publicly testify about how God has delivered him. And then his second response in the very next verses, 23 through 26, he fulfills that vow. So in your homework, I had you look up a couple Old Testament references to determine what is going on in these verses. So if an Israelite made a vow to the Lord, the law encouraged them to fulfill that vow with an offering and with a feast. They would meet at a separate place, they would invite their family, their servants, or other needy people, like we talked about the Levites who didn't have their own land, so they weren't able to grow their crops, they didn't have livestock, so they invited people like that to this feast and they would serve them a meal. Well, because of David's position in these verses, it looks like he's invited all of Israel to his vow offering. And when they gather, he honors his vow by publicly praising this Lord Praising the Lord. In his testimony, he robustly refutes the, his own fears of verses six through eight. He s- tells them essentially, I may be a worm, but I am not despised. God hasn't hidden his face, he has heard my cries. You can see his testimony right in verse 24. And this testimony compels all afflicted people to keep crying out to God because God does hear and he does deliver. In the first half of the Psalm, David is deserted and alone, right? He's surrounded by his enemies. But here at his vow offering, he's surrounded by a different group of people. He's in the great congregation, kind of like we saw in Psalm one, he's with the faithful, he's with God's people now. He's no longer alone. There's a whole congregation of righteous people with him. And when they're, when they're all together, David lays this feast before them and he encourages them because many of these people also feel isolated, needy, weak, and afflicted. And at this feast, David meets their physical needs. He gives them food to eat and they are satisfied. They're full. But David also offers them soul satisfaction. He sings, may your hearts live forever. David recognizes that God meets the needs of his people, not just delivering their bodies from hunger, but by delivering their souls or their hearts from death. We get in this feast bread for our bodies and living bread for our souls. And this becomes more clear in the next section, verses 27 through 31, where we get David's third response to his deliverance. Here David imagines and he foretells a day when the whole world will hear his testimony of deliverance from death and they will turn to worship the Lord, the true king. Look at verse 27. It says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. And then then in verse 29, the prosperous come to this feast, as well as those who have already died. In verse 30, it's now posterity in the coming generations who will hear this testimony of God's deliverance and they too will worship the Lord. So David is imagining the whole world, right? I mean, stretching back in time to include people who have already died, reaching forward into the future, the coming generations and posterity. All these people gathered together in God's presence for another feast where God feeds them In verse 29 it says, they eat and worship. They are praising God. And the summation of their praise is in the final verse of the Psalm. You can look at that. He has done it, and he has. God delivered David, God delivered Jesus, and he has delivered you. The first half of this Psalm foreshadows Jesus' death and the second half foreshadows Jesus' resurrection and his receiving his promised inheritance because of his death and resurrection. Remember from Psalm two, we know the ends of the earth have become Jesus' possession and the nations are his heritage. Well, here they all are right in Psalm 22, taking refuge, finding salvation in God's established King. But before any of this could happen, before Jesus could claim that crown, He first had to suffer and die and then be delivered. Okay, I mentioned before the three-story structure of Psalms. So in this Psalm, we see all those stories layered together. We see Israel's story, we see Jesus' story, and we see our own story. So David, as representative of Israel, is reliving Israel's story here. this This Psalm is Israel's story in miniature. Okay, Israel was enslaved, they were abused, killed, and hunted, their enemies closed in on them at the Red Sea, but they called out to God. He heard their cries, and he delivered them, and he brought them to the promised land where they were to be a city on a hill, beckoning all of the nations around to come and praise God with them. Does that sound like Psalm 22? Now, we don't know what specific experience David is writing about here, but we, we know that David's life was full of suffering. And we know that God delivered him countless times from his enemies. And this psalm, when David recounts a particular experience of suffering, it sets the pattern for Jesus' suffering. It is fulfilled you know, a millennia later on the cross. So Jesus' story, Jesus' story, like David... Jesus suffered on his path to the throne. In order to rule and bless the nations, he first had to die to take away the stain of their rebellion. Like David in this psalm, Jesus called out to God. Hebrews 5, said, 5, 7 says, he called out to God with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. God heard the cries of Jesus, He raised him from the dead and he crowned him king. Also like David, Jesus stood in the congregation of the righteous and praised God for his deliverance. That's in Hebrews 2.12. Well, if David's testimony spread throughout Israel and the surrounding nations, Jesus' testimony has traveled the globe for 2,000 years, giving hope to the afflicted and bringing many sons and daughters to glory because this is our story too. We recognize in Psalm 22 our own path to glory. We were made to rule, like we learned last week from Psalm 8, and we will reign with Jesus. Like Israel, like David, like Jesus, we are wandering through the wilderness on the way to the Promised Land. Here, we are going to run from our enemies, we will suffer their jeers and taunts, There will be loneliness and persecution. There will be pain and suffering simply because of our human frailty. There will be difficult temptation. There will be the sad consequences of our failures. But like Israel and David and Jesus before us, we will be delivered from all our suffering. And we have already been delivered from our greatest enemy, from the worst possible suffering. Sin, death, and the devil can no longer enslave us. And we will be delivered from every other grief that plagues us. So our job is the same as Israel's. It's the same as David's. It's the same job Jesus was given. We praise God publicly. We sing the song of the suffering, and that is, He has done it. He has heard my cries, and He has delivered me. Okay, I wanna just give a few reflections now on suffering. Um, And I would just encourage you in the next few days to write out your own reflections. I think we all know how easy it is to sit under um, teaching from the scripture and our hearts are kind of stirred in the moment, but we walk away and a week later we're like, what, what was that about again? So maybe after a Psalm like this where we're focusing on suffering, Go home and write out your own reflections. What has this psalm taught you about suffering? Has it taught you anything about how you should suffer? Has it helped you understand why we suffer? Write those things out and think about them. Um, but if, a few reflections here. I, I'm, this is a huge topic. I'm not going to say everything, and it will probably be very unsatisfying for some people who are in deep suffering. But I want to get the conversation started. So seven or eight, I can't remember how many I have, brief reflections on suffering. First, if God perfected Jesus through suffering, he is surely doing the same for us. In fact, our suffering proves our belonging. So if we never suffer in this life, we actually call our status as a child of God into question because we know that our Heavenly Father disciplines His children. And this isn't punitive punishment, this is just the discipline of a loving Father shaping His children. And Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines us for a specific purpose, so that we can share in His holiness. And as you see your anger and bitterness dissolve into patience and joy, as your sharp tongue gives way to gentle speech, as your wounded soul heals and you begin to reach out to others with forgiveness and mercy, you will know that the suffering and the discipline of the Lord has been worth it all. You are sharing in your Father's holiness and you are just beginning to enjoy the peaceful harvest of righteousness that Hebrews twelve eleven promises. Two, like Jesus, we should call out to God with loud cries and tears. And some of you know exactly what I mean. This is how we do suffering. If you've never crumpled to the ground weeping and begging God for mercy and deliverance, you're not suffering the right way. We are to be hungry for God's mercy and desperate to see God work. So cast yourself on the only one who can deliver you. There is no pride in affliction throw yourself on God's mercy and plead for his deliverance. Three, even in the depths of suffering, we have to be tethered to the truth. Okay, we're gonna have ups and downs just like David. We're gonna experience sorrow, we're gonna be tempted to despair. There will be times that God feels far away, but there will also be times where you know that God is the one who is carrying you. So reason with yourself just like David reasoned with himself in the first half of this Psalm. Speak the truth. Remind yourself about what God is like. He's holy. He hears the cries of his people. Remind yourself he has been faithful to you since birth. Remind yourself that he has already delivered you from the worst kind of suffering and he will not fail to deliver you from every other sorrow if not in this life then absolutely in the next. So endure for the moment. The night will soon be over. The day is almost here. Okay, four, in your suffering, find comfort and companionship in Jesus. He is not untouched by your suffering. Remember how he wept at the tomb of Lazarus? Remember how in his exhaustion and desperation to be alone with God, he instead turned back to the sin-sick multitude. He touched their diseased bodies, he delivered them from the powers of darkness, he patiently taught them, he fed them, he bent down and hugged and blessed their little children. He is not disgusted or ashamed by needy and afflicted people because he was afflicted too. He personally understands suffering, he experientially knows human frailty, and he experientially knows what it's like to live in a cursed world. And because he knows this and has experienced it himself, he is full of compassion for you. Okay, five, temptation is suffering, and suffering is a temptation. So when we suffer in our bodies, in our relationships, we suffer from injustice or lack of material provisions. We are tempted to find an immediate deliverance instead of calling out to God and waiting for His deliverance. You know, we want all of the promises of new creation, we're kind of looking for them right now. We want perfect love. And if we haven't found it with a husband, we're tempted to look outside of God's marriage design. We want deliverance from pain, so maybe we turn to drugs. We want comfort and pleasure, maybe we turn to food. I don't know what it is, maybe you spend too much money on your home making it perfect. Maybe you struggle with parenting, so you just kinda check out emotionally, invest in some place that brings a little bit more fulfillment. You get the point. When we don't get our perfect life now, we start looking for it, not in the future, where it's promised, but in all the perversions of the good things that God has made down here. And we turn love and money and health and pleasure into gods. And it is suffering to resist those gods. There's a reason the Bible talks about resisting temptation as dying to self, because it feels like dying when you bite your tongue instead of spew angry words. It hurts to. It hurts when your marriage is falling apart but you turn your back on the promised pleasure of an illicit relationship. It hurts to turn away from that extra portion of dessert. Part of you thinks, no, it will make me happy. Um, It feels like death, some personal testimony here, it feels like death to humble yourself and say, I was wrong, will you forgive me? But in those moments, call out to Jesus because he too knows the pain of being tempted He is human after all. He suffered when he was tempted in order to become your merciful high priest. So he wants us to run to him when we are tempted and he promises that he is happy and eager to dispense all the mercy and all the grace you will need to resist those temptations. And he makes us this promise that he will always provide an escape in your suffering, you do not have to sin. Okay, six, feed your hope with truth, but also with imagination, like David did in this psalm. Think of a day you will be fully delivered from all your suffering. You will be fully perfected, free from sin at last. It's going to happen. We are going to eat in God's presence with all the faithful people. We will worship and sing, He has done it, and our hearts will live forever. Seven, pain is God's way of reminding us this world is not our home. This is God's way of helping us long for and imagine our true home. Okay, This life is just a poorly painted replica of a much greater masterpiece. Don't get stuck here anticipate, imagine, and long for the real thing. Eight, last one here. Open your mouth and testify of your deliverance. Okay, This is part of our commission. Like we are to exercise dominion in this world, spreading the glorious kingdom of God from shore to shore. Well, this is partly how we do it, through the praise of our lips. Don't underestimate the effect a simple testimony of praise can have on the people around you start in your own home. This is something I've been convicted by. I need to praise the Lord to my children. I want them to see me doing that. And I want to, I'm praying for that to have an evangelistic effect on their souls. So start in your own homes and then work outward from there. But also, Be quick to give God the glory for all the other many deliverances he has accomplished for you. Yes, absolutely speak of your greatest deliverance from sin and death, but talk about the other ways God has delivered you. Has he healed your body? Has he protected you or your family from dangerous situations? Has he provided for you? Has he filled your heart with joy and peace? Have you seen him work in the lives of your family and friends? Have you been reconciled with somebody you had a falling out with? Publicly praise him for that because he has done it. That is the song of the suffering. All right, let's close in prayer. Dear Father, you have done it. You have delivered us from the enslaving power of sin and death. You have welcomed us into your presence because of the life death and resurrection of Jesus. And we are so grateful. Help us to speak of your great salvation to our families and friends and neighbors. Help us to be quick to give you praise for all the ways you have and you do deliver us from suffering. And use our testimonies, we pray, to bring more people into the great congregation of the righteous. In Jesus' name, amen.